This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The echoes of the legal challenges to the 2020 presidential election are still with us today. From the January 6th congressional hearings of an attack animated by concern over a stolen election to the 30% of Americans who have lost faith in election integrity, it is vital to reassure everyone that every allegation of fraud or election wrongdoing be given its day in court. Now, fully a year and a half after the election, with more than 60 legal challenges to the 2020 election heard in the six contested states, eight prominent conservative authorities have compiled a comprehensive list of the results entitled Lost, Not Stolen, the conservative case that Trump lost and Biden won the 2020 presidential election. Far from being dismissive of the need to scrutinize election integrity when necessary, the paper offers readers acknowledgement that there is a long record of legal challenges to election results to reassure losing candidates that they did indeed lose a fair fight. The paper compiles all election cases and verdicts to argue that the losing candidates and their party's leadership must embrace the final legal outcome to preserve and restore faith in our country's democratic system. My guest today is Ilya Soman, author and law professor at George Mason University. Professor Soman has written extensively on the legal challenges to the 2020 presidential election. He will share with us his views on the Lost Not Stolen report, the stated intent of its authors, what the report includes, and how readers can use its content to reassure themselves all legal concerns have been vetted, heard, and fairly adjudicated. Professor Soman will also discuss why the author's reputations as principled conservatives, many appointed by or allied with the Trump administration, is so important for restoring faith in the process and moving forward to winning elections fairly. When I return, I'll be joined by George Mason University law professor, Ilya Soman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by author and law professor at George Mason University, Ilya Soman. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, our conversation today is going to be centered on a, a report just released entitled Lost, Not Stolen, The Conservative Case That Trump Lost and Biden Won the 2020 Presidential Election. I know that just the title may have either irritated or lost some of our listeners, but I want them to have a little bit of confidence, a little faith. Uh, bear with us. Listen to our conversation. Perhaps they might come away with some useful information. Uh, and I think uh, we, I've invited you on because you've written thoughtfully about uh, this report. So let's cover it in detail. Um, uh, let's start at the beginning and say, what was the purpose of this report that was just released? I'd say it has two purposes. First, to just provide a comprehensive and easily accessible overview of all of the litigation generated by the 2020 election and uh, Trump's charge that it was stolen from him. Uh, uh, and it goes over all the cases and also all the allegations made by Trump and his supporters all in one place and in relatively accessible language to the extent that you know this kind of legal stuff can be made accessible. And I think that's a real merit in that if you if you're a busy person and you're not a specialist in these things, then you know it's easier to access it this way than you know to look at all the individual materials in different places or you know might be a little bit hard to find. The second reason that this report is distinctive is the authors uh, all are big name conservative legal luminaries. 
Uh, three of them are former conservative Republican appointed federal judges, Michael Ludig, Thomas Griffith, and Michael McConnell. Two of them, Ludig and McConnell, were often seen as serious potential Republican nominees to the Supreme Court. Uh, then there's uh, former senators John Danforth and Gordon Smith. Danforth, by the way, is also the former attorney general of Missouri, in which capacity he was actually a major mentor to Clarence Thomas. He gave Clarence Thomas his first job uh, out of law school, and uh, Thomas worked for him for a number of years in a crucial stage in his career. Uh, the other authors are Ted Olson, who is a Republican super lawyer, as People in the profession like to call him. He's also the former Solicitor General under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, the Solicitor General is the person who represents the administration before the Supreme Court uh, and other uh, federal appellate courts. And now he's one of sort of the biggest name appellate lawyers on the conservative uh, side. Uh, also included are Benjamin Ginsburg, who's a prominent uh, GOP election law expert, and David Hoppe, who was a longtime aide to uh, various GOP members of Congress. So these people are conservative Republicans, and it's worth adding uh, that they're also not never Trumpers. That is, uh, these are all people who remain affiliated with the Republican Party. They say so themselves. Uh, you know, they they voted for the Republican Party. Most, if not all of them, probably even voted for Trump in the 2020 election, though uh, we don't know this for sure. Uh, so that in their report, which to ruin the suspense concludes that nearly all of the charges raised by Trump were false and shows that the litigation of the election uh, case had decisively proved that this was so. Uh, it's very difficult to ascribe this to saying when these people are liberals or even that they're never Trumpers or that, you know, they secretly want the Republican Party to fail. Uh, you know, it's very hard to say that uh, about these particular individuals. And it's also hard to say that, you know, these are just unqualified people who don't know what they're talking about, given that they are, uh, as I mentioned earlier, big name uh, legal luminaries. So uh, they're uh, both credentials as uh, as uh, conservatives and legal uh, experts. Uh, their bona fides is established. Uh, is there any uh, you, you say they're not and never Trumpers, but uh, have they have any of them written authoritatively uh, against Trump or before this as uh, uh, revealing their never Trump sentiment? So uh, I am not familiar with all of their writings and every issue, but certainly none of them have been prominently involved in any kind of anti-Trump activities, to my knowledge, except for in the aftermath of January 6th, Mike Ludig, who advised uh Vice President Mike Pence during that time and, uh, you know, was involved in trying to dissuade uh, the effort to overturn the election. Uh, he has obviously been very critical of that and testified before Congress on it. Uh, but there's no doubt that the man is a conservative Republican. And even this uh, sequence of events has not led him to break with the Republican Party. So, um, okay, we've established who the authors are. Um, what is the scope of this? I, I don't know if you would call it an, an investigation, but this report, what, what was uh, the scope of uh, what was written in, in this report? Sure. So it's an overview of all of the cases, 64 in all, that were file, filed either by Trump to, uh, Trump's campaign or by his supporters, such as the so-called Kraken lawyers, uh, challenging the election results, uh, and also an overview of the different charges that Trump made, some of which you know, did not make it into court. 
And it looks particularly at sort of the six crucial battleground states where all or nearly all these cases were filed. And obviously everybody agrees where decisive to the election result. Uh, and it concludes that with perhaps one minor exception where the Trump side did prevail in court, uh, all of these charges were rejected by the courts uh, for good reason. And the reason being simply that there wasn't any anything re remotely resembling an adequate factual basis for them. It's worth noting that in many cases, they were rejected by Republican appointed judges, including a good many who were appointed by Donald Trump himself. Indeed. Um, now, when we look at this analysis, uh, whether they're dismissed or not, whether the, the cases were heard or not, um, is, is this report looking at the, let's say, procedural um, flaws in these cases or the factual flaws? In other words, if I uh, want to make an allegation, uh, I can make a good legal argument or a poor legal argument, but the facts maybe support me. I just didn't represent them very well. Do, do you? Sure. So there are a total of 64 cases uh, that they cover, some in state court and some in federal court. Of those, 30 actually did reach what lawyers call the merits. That is, they rejected the actual arguments uh, being made substantively in the cases were not dismissed on procedural grounds. 14 more were dismissed because the Trump campaign or other pro-Trump plaintiffs decided to withdraw the case after it was filed. And I would bet that in most, if not all of those cases, it was because they realized they couldn't win. Then there were indeed some uh, 19 or 20 cases that uh, got dismissed on various kinds of procedural grounds, though I would note that there are some instances where procedure has connection to substance, but there were a great many cases, including many cases heard by Republican appointed judges of various kinds that were heard on demerits, or alternatively, uh, the pro-Trump side decided to withdraw the case in many instances because they realized they couldn't win on the merits. Indeed, uh, the authors document a bunch of cases where when you actually get into court, Rudy Giuliani or some other pro-Trump lawyer, the, the judge asked, so you know, do you have evidence of voter fraud? If so, show it to us. I go, no, this is not a fraud case. And obviously the reason that why their rhetoric in court diverges from their rhetoric outside of court is if you say this outside of court, in most cases, except in a few situations involving libel and the like, you can say what you want. You're protected by the First Amendment. Whereas if you get into court and you lie to the judges, uh, then there are various sanctions that lawyers can come under. So if you look at how these cases went, uh, the pro-Trump lawyers were much more cautious in many instances in what they said in court than elsewhere. In cases where they weren't cautious and ended up losing, uh, some of these people, including the Kraken lawyers, uh, have actually come under proceedings where uh, they may be sanctioned by the bars of their of the various states involved. And that's notable because as many legal member of the legal profession will tell you in general, the legal profession tends to protect its own and is very reluctant to sanction lawyers. Uh, and so in cases where the lawyers do come under sanction, it's usually because the conduct was extraordinarily egregious as it in fact was in some of these cracking cases. So you mentioned states. Uh, not surprisingly, these uh, court cases came up in what we call swing states, those that were close uh, or uh, reasonably close. Uh, I'm going to rattle them off. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Um, some are, uh, let's say, lean right, some lean left, some have Republican legislators, and some don't. Uh, I don't know if you want to get to this level of granularity. Can you characterize, let's say, how it went in each of those states 
um, if it was a sort of a sympathetic audience or not. Um, you know, um, uh, you, we don't have to go deep on each of the cases, but how would you characterize each um, uh, state's handling of these cases? So in each state, while certainly details uh, differed, almost every case ended up in a defeat for the pro-Trump side, with the exception of one case in Pennsylvania, which turned out to involve only a small number of votes, not nearly enough to shift the, I think, something like 180,000 vote margin in that state. Uh, I would note, obviously, that there were different officials handling uh, things in different states, some of them Republican officials, others Democratic. But it's worth noting that in the states of Arizona and Georgia, uh, where the state government was under the control of the Republicans, the executive branch, and also uh, the legislature, nonetheless, the, you know, the, the results were much the same uh, as in states where the Democrats had more influence, like Michigan, uh, in uh, Arizona and also in Georgia, Republican election officials who were involved in audits or overviews of the votes uh, concluded that uh, you know there was no certainly no significant voter fraud enough to overturn the results. Later in Michigan, uh, the Republican members of the state legislature did an audit of the election results. This was after just a few months after the election, they put out a report, which is cited in the report that we're talking about. And their report concluded that while there were a few irregularities here and there, uh, there was nothing that could overturn uh, the actually pretty large margin uh, by which Biden prevailed uh, in Michigan. In, in the state of Arizona, pro-Trump forces uh, actually hired the so-called, I think they're called cyber ninjas, uh, which was a sort of a group affiliated with conservative Republicans that they hoped they would find evidence of voter fraud in Maricopa County, which is Arizona's largest. After the ninjas completed their investigation, they actually found uh, that in their view, uh, Biden won Maricopa County by a slightly larger margin uh, than the official vote count indicates. So uh, to the extent that there were irregularities in that particular instance on that, they actually favored Trump. Though I should emphasize, we're talking about only a few hundred votes that uh, would not have you yeah. in a substantial indeed, difference I, in the overall outcome. Indeed, the report is remarkably clear. It lays it out for laymen like me, uh, which was very interesting. I hadn't encountered this, the cyber ninjas. Just take Arizona as an example. They hand counted the votes three times. Uh, they found out of 2.1 million votes, 99 irregularities. And these are not fraud, evidence of fraud, but rather um, uh, ballots that might not have been counted the same way. Um, 100 out of 2.1 million. And as you say, uh, Biden actually uh, increased his vote count by 10, 10 more after three hand counts. Um, and the irregularity, the rate of irregularities was a, at a smaller, lower percentage than historical um, irregularities. So I, I thought that was remarkable. Um, what were the, you know, when we talk about irregularities, um, uh, what was the nature um, of, of what was alleged and what was found? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we all, we've heard of the Dominion voting machines being, uh, manipulated uh, items like that. Um, what was sort of the general family of, of allegations and, and did some have more merit than others? So there was a whole enormous range of allegations, almost all of which had almost no merit. I can't go over them all, though the report does. I'll just mention a few. One was indeed that Dominion voting machines or other voting machines were manipulated either by the Democrats or in some cases the claim that it was, that it was done by Hugo Chavez, the 
dictator of Venezuela who passed away back in 2013, <laughs> or by or by North Korea or other foreign forces. And you know the 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 um uh, the evidence on this is just simply that you know there's just no evidence that it actually occurred. Um, indeed, the accusation was so ridiculous and so irresponsible that the minion has actually filed libel lawsuits against Rudy Giuliani and others who publicly made these accusations. And while such lawsuits are actually quite difficult to win, the minion is actually well on its way to winning settlement, uh, to winning big judgments against Giuliani and others. And such stations as Newsmax uh, have had to run obsequious retractions. Uh, of some of the things they said on the air. So, you know, there's just no merit to this one. Um, in other cases, there's accusations of voter fraud. Once again, uh, here, it, while in an election of, with 160 million voters, you're almost always going to have a few cases of voter fraud. Uh, there's just no evidence that it happened on anything like the scale necessary to turn the results. In still other cases, there are allegations of things like people uh, violating procedural rules of elections, like voting in the wrong district or uh, mailing in their ballots late and the like. This, again, is the kind of thing that it's going to happen in some cases in pretty much any election. And it is true that there are a few instances where uh, here you can argue and some in the court in Pennsylvania did conclude that some of Trump's allegations had some merit, in particular, uh, in a case that made its way to the Supreme Court, but ultimately wasn't fully heard by them. Uh, there was a question of whether the state of Pennsylvania should accept several thousand mail-in ballots that arrived after the uh, deadline. Uh, and Pennsylvania officials argued the answer that should be accepted. The Republican Party said no. Ultimately, the Supreme Court never fully resolved this issue because the number of votes, a few thousand of them, was nowhere near enough to overturn uh, Biden's margin in Pennsylvania, which was something like 20 times as great as that. And it wouldn't be enough even if every single one of those votes was a vote for Biden, which in fact it was not. There were some that were votes for Trump. Uh, and then obviously there are some examples of things like people voting in the wrong district or claiming to be registered in the state or residents of the state, even though they actually weren't. Again, with 160 million voters, such cases happen in almost every election. There were nowhere near enough of them in this instance to make any difference in, in any state or even to make a decisive difference even in one precinct within one state. And of such few cases like this that have been found, um, some of them, you know, actually were people who cast Republican ballots, including, ironically, um, it may be that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chiefs of staff, voted in Virginia illegally because he wasn't, he may actually not have been a genuine resident of Virginia at the time, uh, though I should emphasize it's possible he just legitimately screwed up. Uh, many of these kinds of procedural screw-ups uh, are just honest mistakes, either by people who just don't know the details of the laws, which can be complicated, or in Meadows' case, perhaps, you know, he's a busy guy, he simply didn't have the time to, you know, to look into this or, you know, to get his lawyer to do so. So I'm going to be uh, the devil's advocate, uh, uh, talking with another professional advocate and say, does the does the absence of evidence uh, mean evidence of absence? In other words, for our listeners saying, look, these uh, these lawsuits uh, didn't uncover any wrongdoing. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. How can our listeners be sure uh, something wasn't overlooked? Yeah. So 
it's almost certain that something somewhere was overlooked because, as I said before, in an election with 160 million voters, it's imp- there's always going to be some irregularities and it's impossible for anyone to find every single one. What your listeners or really anybody should be concerned about is not whether there were some irregularities somewhere, but whether they were of a scale such that they shifted the outcome of the election or even came close to it. And there, uh, the absence of evidence really is telling because what we are talking about in order to shift the outcome of the election is tens of thousands or really hundreds of thousands of votes spread across four, at least uh, three or four states. Uh, we're talking, we're talking about sort of a massive operation uh, of fraud or deception or something of that sort or voting machine manipulation, whatever you want to posit. Uh, it would require an enormous operation that would weave an evidence trail And when you have an organization as large and wealthy as the Republican Party looking for that evidence and having a very strong incentive to find it, if they nonetheless failed to find anything even remotely in the ballpark uh, of what is needed to prove this, that's pretty good evidence that it didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen anything like the scale that would be necessary to shift an electoral outcome. I would also add a point here sort of about the general competence of government. Uh, that in general, government is not that good at sort of you know, uh, carrying out large, complex operations and then keeping them completely secret. As we've learned in recent years, even with things like military and diplomatic operations, they have trouble. It seems to me virtually impossible uh, that a whole bunch of different state, local, and federal officials were able to pull off this kind of operation on a massive scale involving hundreds of thousands of votes and yet leave virtually no evidence behind. Uh, I just don't believe that our state, federal, and local governments have that kind of competence. And I would add also that in order to do it, you would have had to have many thousands of people uh, cooperate and involved in the operation, and it would be virtually impossible to ensure that all of those people would keep quiet, or even if they were trying to keep quiet, it would be virtually impossible to ensure that none of them wouldn't slip up and, you know, let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. So if, like many of Trump supporters, or for that matter, many Americans across the political spectrum, you're generally suspicious of government's competence and don't think that it, you know, that it operates very efficiently. It's a kind of a contradiction to say, well, in general, government isn't very competent or efficient. They have trouble doing things like delivering the mail. But the one thing they can do really efficiently is bring off a massive conspiracy involving hundreds of thousands of votes and then keeping it completely secret. Uh, even if they wanted to do this, uh, I just don't think that they could. And the attempt to do so would certainly be found out. Uh, the Republican Party would have strong incentives to find the evidence. And judges, particularly Republican appointed judges, would have strong incentives to give serious consideration to that kind of evidence and to rule in favor of the plaintiffs, if indeed they could have presented it. Unlike what happened in the real world, where when judges, including Republican appointed judges, ask for the evidence, often the answer is like, well, we didn't really mean to say that there was actual fraud. Uh, We're just saying, you know, there might be some irregularity somewhere of some kind. So I I agree. I'm, I'm just going to lob. Uh, you can give me a short answer and say, okay. Uh, nevertheless, we did have these lawsuits uh, by competent, and one hopes competent and and um, qualified legal minds. Uh, do you think these uh, lawsuits, uh, the pro-Trump lawsuits, were motivated by a, a genuine, sincere belief there may have been irregularities, or would you take a more cynical view and say 
um, they were malicious or frivolous uh, in their intent? And, and a short answer is all, I, I, I suspect I know the answer. Yeah, so I think there's variation from case to case. There were a few cases that had some merit, or at least you can plausibly argue they could. Nonetheless, the uh, operation as a whole was driven by a combination of cynicism and lying, or at best, deep ideological and partisan bias that prevented people from seeing the truth. And that's why a good many of the lawyers involved in this are now facing sanctions, which is highly unusual. And that's why when they got into court, in many instances, they were just laughed out of court, including uh, by Republican appointed judges. It's certainly true, as I tried to emphasize before, that in virtually any large scale election, you're going to get some cases of irregularity. Uh, but uh, the usual practice is not to pursue the litigation to the hill unless there's a real chance you could overturn the result. The margin in this election was actually pretty similar to the one that occurred in the 2004 presidential election or in 2012. And the charges here were on par with the Democratic charges that older listeners may remember where you know some people said, well, Bush stole the 2004 election in Ohio by rigging or manipulating the voting machines in that state. And a few people on the left, like RFK Jr., for example, uh, spun various conspiracy theories that this happened. Uh, uh, indeed, that argument was actually even slightly less ridiculous than the ones in this election, because in that election, everything really did turn on Ohio, whereas in this one, uh, the Republicans would have had to flip at least three states in order to prevail. Fortunately, in 2004, the Democratic candidate John Kerry didn't give credence to these kind of conspiracy tales, and he quickly conceded. Uh, the election, so it was left to sort of a left-wing fringe to carry this on. Bondia, unfortunately, Donald Trump behaved less responsibly, and so ridiculous conspiracy theories got more of a purchase in the public imagination than happened back in 2004. Well, I'm glad you point to uh, uh, incidences where um, other other parties uh, and other candidates have have uh, uh, experienced at least uh, the. Uh, uh, conspiracy theories of their own. You've written extensively, indeed, long before Trump came on the scene. I think it was back in 2013 or 14, 15 uh, in your book. Um, uh, and you've written about uh, rational ignorance that many voters have um, and uh, essentially why it is that voters are vulnerable to these conspiracy theories. You mentioned several of them in just the last two decades. What is it about um, uh, voters uh, that they are susceptible to being persuaded by uh, whether they're, uh, they're um, uh, charismatic leaders or um, um, mischievous uh, uh, minions, why do people? Uh, why are people susceptible to conspiracy theories? I think there is two fundamental reasons, which I discuss in my book, and perhaps another one which I didn't cover as much. The book, for what it's worth, is democracy and political ignorance. I wrote it back in 2013 or published it then, uh, and there's a revised edition in 2016, but all written before this latest run of conspiracy theories. One reason is simply that most voters are what economists call rationally ignorant. That is, for perfectly understandable reasons, 
uh, they have very little incentive to spend more than minimal amount of time and effort seeking out political information. Uh, because if your only reason for doing so is to be a better voter, that's not much of an incentive at all, given that the chance your one vote will make a difference to electoral outcomes is infinitesimally small, about one in 60 million in a presidential election, for instance. Uh, so most voters, the data show, actually know very little about government and politics. And if you know little about how government uh, actually works, that makes you more susceptible to sort of conspiracy theories. Uh, among other things, you may not think about the fact of, you know, is government actually competent enough to carry out this conspiracy? What would be required for it to actually happen or for it to actually uh, succeed uh, and so on? But there's also another source uh, of this problem, which is related to ignorance, but distinct. And that is that for the very same reason, the voters have little incentive to be well-informed. They also have little incentive to think carefully about the validity of the information they do here uh, and to check their biases. We, all of us, uh, we tend to be more accepting of information that reinforces our pre-existing views than goes against them. Uh, that happens in every aspect of life, but in other aspects, you know, if we hear about a deal that's too good to be true, that, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's emailed to us or something like a Saudi prince supposedly says, I'm going to give you a million dollars, you have some incentive to be skeptical about that and not to be drawn in. Uh, um, on the other hand, with political information, precisely because there's very little incentive to work hard to make a good decision at the ballot box, people tend not to do a good job of controlling their biases. And therefore, they are susceptible to misinformation and conspiracy theories that reinforce uh, their pre-existing views uh, and that uh, support their partisan biases, which is why it's not at all surprising that most of the believers in Trump's big why about 2020 election are partisan Republicans. Contrarywise, most of the believers in the conspiracy theory that Bush allowed the 9-11 attacks to happen deliberately uh, so-called 9-11 trutherism. Believers in that were and, and are overwhelmingly partisan Democrats. Uh, and in both cases, people were sort of applying low evidentiary standards to claims that reinforce their uh, partisan biases. This happens on both the left and the right, but uh, you know, the aftermath of the 2020 election uh, is a particularly egregious example of this bipartisan phenomenon. Uh, and finally, I think the phenomenon is more likely to occur, or at least it will affect more people in situations like the present when things are deeply polarized, and therefore we're more reluctant to accept the legitimacy of the, uh, the opponent's victory than we would in a case where we felt like, you know, there's not that much difference between the Democrats or Republicans, and therefore we don't feel like the other party winning is, you know, that big a deal. Indeed, uh, uh, the best joke I've heard about this whole conspiracy thing is that a guy and his wife die and go to heaven and they, they talk to God and they say, you know, now that I'm here, uh, uh, who really won the 2020 election? And God says, Biden won fair and square. And the guy says to his wife, wow, this conspiracy goes higher than I thought. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So an omnipotent guide could indeed bring <laughs> off a conspiracy like this the distinctly non-omnipotent politicians and bureaucrats that we actually have, uh, it's much more unlikely. Now, given, as you, you just noted, the, the increasingly partisan nature of uh, news and institutions in general, how does one, you know, our listeners sitting there thinking they're uneasy, maybe they feel like they've been part and, and drawn into this conspiracy. How does one really uh, inoculate oneself or um, protect oneself from being uh, seduced by, by uh, conspiracy theories? 
there's no perfect remedy. And obviously, as I noted before, voters actually have strong incentives to not want to be cured of this particular disease, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, because of the dynamics that I mentioned earlier. But if you do want to avoid it, I would note uh, sort of two kinds of things. One is just be, be wary of elaborate conspiracy theories generally, be afraid because I mentioned before, it's unlikely that government has the competence to bring them off, at least not liberal democratic government in the US and other Western democracies. Secondly, uh, pay attention to situations where there is a pretty broad cross ideological consensus of experts. Uh, so if experts are split along left versus right lines, uh, then you know that's maybe some evidence that the experts are suffering from ideological bias, just like everybody else. You should still pay some attention to them, but you know, uh, but you know, th their their opinions are less probative. They might be elsewhere. If, on the other hand, there is a pretty broad uh, cross ideological consensus of experts, uh, then it's worth giving that at least some deference. And on this issue, uh, there is overwhelmingly people who actually know a lot about. Uh, you know, the mechanics of voting in elections and the relevant legal doctrines and so forth, they tend to agree with what was said in, in this report that we're talking about, uh, including, of course, the prominent conservatives who authored the report itself. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, just be aware of your own biases. If you're a liberal Democrat, you're likely to be more susceptible to sort of liberal democratic conspiracy monitoring and misinformation. And similarly, if you're a conservative Republican, your biases are gonna be the opposite. If you're a libertarian like me, you have, you're gonna have some biases of your own. So uh, you can't completely protect against those biases, but you should at least know where they are. And therefore you should worry much more about yourself being taken in by conspiracy theories or misinformation that support your pre-existing views than being taken in by misinformation by your partisan or ideological enemies. Of course, sadly, actual partisans tend to worry much more about that second scenario, even though it's actually much less likely. Indeed, uh, uh, it's easy for us to see the conspiracies on the other side, not our own. Now, the, um, our listeners may uh, dismiss both this report and perhaps our conversation as somehow having a, a bias against Donald Trump. Um, but actually, the authors go to great lengths to say they have no malice towards either Trump or his voters. Nevertheless, um, if indeed either uh, Donald J. Trump um, knew uh, the big lie was indeed a lie or didn't, uh, that would uh, damage his reputation and certainly his uh, um, prospects, his political prospects in the future. Um, wouldn't this report, despite its assertion that it has no malice towards Donald Trump, uh, if it were um, embraced and uh, understood and accepted by uh, Donald Trump's party, the Republican Party, wouldn't it make the prospects for his renomination far less likely and therefore somewhat damaging? So I think certainly his promotion of the big Y should be damaging to Trump, though the partisan dynamics that I mentioned earlier, at least so far, have made the damage less severe than might otherwise be the case. Uh, but I would also say that I you know, am less forgiving than the author of the report. I think he does, in fact, deserve severe blame for what he did. Either he knew that he was lying about this stuff uh, or 
Uh, he was negligent in his evaluation of information, which is still reprehensible. If you're the president of the United States, you're not, I can, I can forgive some guy, you know, who's busy and has little time to pay attention to what's going on in politics and therefore just unthinkingly let their prejudices run wild. When you're the president of the United States, you have a higher responsibility uh, than that. And you certainly can't say, you know, I was busy doing something else, so I didn't have time. Uh, and I would note that what is in this report is more or less the kind of thing that was told to him by his own knowledgeable advisors, including his attorney general, uh, 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 Bill Barr, who uh, is, if anything, is an even more rock rib conservative in most ways than uh, you know, the authors of this report. Uh, so uh, I think uh, while it's reasonable to be forgiving of you know, rank and trial Trump supporters who get taken in by this, uh, I'm much less forgiven of Trump himself and other political elites uh, who were involved in this. As we're getting close to the end of our time together, I, I really appreciate your time, but um, sort of a, as a philosophical matter, do you see, um, is it disloyal uh, when your party does uh, uh, go down this path towards a conspiracy and challenge the results of election? Is it disloyal to be critical of uh, one's own party uh, and call them out? Or do you think ultimately in the long run, the party is stronger if it identifies where uh, its own members, its own leadership have gone astray and really... Um, uh, forsaken the, uh, the the values and the principles of the party. Uh, what what is your personal view? So I think people's ultimate loyalty should be to the principles of, on which the Constitution and the United States were founded on, and which we're trying to achieve. Uh, a particular political party deserves loyalty only in so far as it's in accordance with those principles and when it starts to undermine them by promoting conspiracy theories, violating people's rights or engaging in any other kind of heinous conduct, uh, misplaced loyalty to the party should not prevent people from speaking out any more than loyalty to the mafia or something like that should prevent people from condemning uh, you know, crime bosses when, you know, when, when they do things that are wrong. Loyalty it has to be earned and the right to it uh, can be lost. Indeed, three cheers for uh, integrity and principles. Uh, let's hope we, we, you and I are not blinded by our own uh, uh, conspiracy theories. So uh, thank you very much for this thoughtful analysis of this report. Uh, where can uh, our listeners find the report and read it for themselves, uh, independent of our interpretation? So if you Google the title of the report, uh, you can find it. You can also find links to it in the blog post about it that I put up earlier today at the VOLA conspiracy blog, V-O-L-O-K-H, uh, at the uh, Reason uh, Magazine website. Uh, but in general, the easiest way is just to Google the title of the report. It's available for free and you can download it. And wonderful. And I think also if uh, our listeners go to your uh, VOLA conspiracy uh, blog, they can also find you and even uh, reference some of the books that we mentioned uh, and catch up and, and read your uh, excellent work uh, that you've written. So thank you very much for being on Hubwonk again, Ilya. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.